Well, the most vivid memory of the first few weeks was the trauma of listening to the survivors from Piper Alpha. Each one came and told the inquiry how he escaped from the rig. And I have to say, at times, the tears ran down my face because these men had faced what they thought was certain death. With most of them, it was just luck they made it. The main lessons were that you had to improve the quality of safety management by the senior managers of all the operators. You can't manage safety well by saying, have more lifeboats, or have more life belts, or do this, or do that. Each operator has to commit from the top level to managing safety well. Hi everyone, my name is Drew Ray, and welcome to another episode of DisasterCast, the podcast about man-made disasters and what we can do to avoid them. Thank you to everyone who's tweeted or blogged about the show, or rated it on iTunes. In the absence of money, fame, or academic citations, a little ego-stroking goes a long way. In the last episode, I mentioned that this show was going to be about medical devices. I forgot that I'd be putting the episode together at the same time as the Piper Alpha 25th anniversary, so you're getting something a little bit different from what was promised. This gives me more time to set out and edit some of the interviews for the next couple of shows. The first part of this episode is adapted from a piece I prepared for the Pod Delusion podcast. I'm going to use this summary of the accident as a jumping-off point to talk about some of the deeper issues of Piper Alpha. The 6th of July 2013 marked the 25th anniversary of the destruction of the Piper Alpha offshore platform. At 10pm on 6th July 1988, a gas leak explosion triggered a series of fires and further explosions. Less than two hours later, the platform with most of the crew fell beneath the North Sea. Even though it was the deadliest ever oil rig accident, with 167 workers killed, Piper Alpha would struggle to make a list of the 100 worst accidents in the United Kingdom. The sheer ferocity of the disaster, though, and the graphic televised images of the burning rig, have elevated Piper Alpha to a special significance in the public mind, and the accident also holds an important place in the history of system safety. To understand what went wrong on Piper Alpha, we'll need to look long before the night of the accident. A standard part of any safety management system is a process called permit to work. When you're maintaining a piece of equipment, the last thing you want is someone else trying to turn that equipment on. Good permit to work systems make it physically impossible to turn on a piece of equipment that someone else is maintaining. Typically, the worker disconnects power to the equipment, attaches a labelled padlock preventing it being turned on again, and puts the key in their pocket. If a second worker wants to do a different job, also needing the equipment disconnected, they add another padlock. The only way to turn the equipment back on is for both workers to agree that it is safe and to unlock their padlocks. Both the labels and the padlocks are important. The labels explain why the equipment is unavailable. The padlocks make sure the equipment is unavailable. The permit-to-work system on Piper Alpha was badly broken. Even the woefully inadequate written procedures were not being followed. Vital equipment was protected by poorly organised, handwritten sheets of paper. 
trusting in informal verbal communication to keep the system working. The safety staff supposedly were checking that the procedures were being followed, but they had not noticed any of the numerous and flagrant violations of the procedures. In 1987, Occidental Petroleum, the operators of Piper Alpha, had been prosecuted for a fatality partly blamed on the permit-to-work system. This resulted in another piece of paper, an internal memorandum, which seems to have had no effect on actual practice. Another important part of the safety management system is training. Newcomers to Piper Alpha were expected to undergo a combined firefighting and survival course onshore. On arrival at the platform, they were given another safety briefing, approximately one hour long. If it was six months since a worker had been on Piper Alpha, they were to be considered a newcomer and given the training again. Of course, that's only what was supposed to happen. Here's a quote from the inquiry when survivors were asked about the safety briefing. He asked, Have we been on the Piper before? I said, No. He said, Have you worked offshore before? And I said, Yes. He said, Well, you know what the score is then. That was much about what it was. That was a quote from one of the people who reported that they had the briefing. Others were simply handed the out-of-date safety handbook, which referred to equipment not even installed on Piper Alpha. Every two months, the safety training coordinator checked that the training was working properly. By asking the same people who were supposed to be conducting the training. Strangely enough, he received glowing reports about the quality of the training. A third part of safety management is emergency planning. This includes understanding the responsibilities and command roles in an emergency, providing reliable means of communication, having a safe place to manage an emergency from, regularly maintaining and testing the firefighting and evacuation equipment, and having multiple safe routes for evacuation. That works pretty well, both as a list of what is needed and as a list of what the designers and management of Piper Alpha did not do. With all that as background, we can explain quite simply what happened at 9.45 that night. At around that time, one of two condensate injection pumps failed. This was a fairly serious event, since without a working injection pump, the platform would lose electrical power and stop production. The pump couldn't be restarted, so they decided to switch to the other pump, which was currently out of service due to maintenance. Remember the permit-to-work system we talked about? Well, the other pump was out of service for two separate reasons. The operators in the control room only knew about one of these reasons, and so they thought it was safe to turn the pump back on. The other reason, the one they didn't know about because a piece of paper had been misplaced, was that the pump was completely missing a high-pressure valve. As soon as the pump was turned on, a large gas cloud formed and then exploded. The explosion ripped through the walls of the gas module, which were designed to protect against fires, but not against explosions, as well as destroying the control room and decapitating the damage control efforts. The explosion caused leaks and fires throughout the other production modules. Remember the emergency planning? Well, the firefighting system didn't work. The radios and tannoy announcements didn't work. The rescue vessels 
didn't work. Most of the crew ended up trapped in the accommodation block, with no safe way out. The managers on the nearby Tartan and Claymore oil rigs were ill-prepared for an emergency and reacted poorly. In fact, they maintained pressure in the oil and gas pipes leading to Piper Alpha, actually feeding the subsequent fire. The heat and smoke prevented rescue by helicopter, and there was insufficient command and control left to make an organised attempt at evacuation of the accommodation block. Remember the training? Well, as it turned out, most of the survivors didn't. For those trapped in the accommodation block, following the emergency procedures meant certain death. In the absence of a properly organised escape attempt, the only way to get out was to disobey the standing instructions. The growing oil fire caused two further gas explosions, which were enough to finish off the platform. After the second explosion, the accommodation block, filled with workers who'd already fallen to the heat and smoke, toppled into the water. The heroes of Piper Alpha were the crews of the fast rescue craft. With helicopters unable to approach the platform, and the larger rescue vessels not working properly, 45 of the 62 survivors were picked up either from the sea or directly from the platform by the small boats. The people rescued were all workers who were on duty at the time of the explosion, or who ignored instructions to make a break for safety from the accommodation. The full death toll of 167 includes 14 Piper Alpha crew who died trying to jump away from the burning platform, but also two fast boat crew who died in the third explosion. In order to properly learn the lessons of Piper Alpha, we need to be very clear on what those lessons are and what they are not. Most importantly, we need to avoid oversimplifying the problem by assuming that people at the time didn't adequately care about safety. They did care, a lot. They put a lot of time and attention into safety. They had systems for managing safety. They had an enthusiastic regulator. The problem was not a lack of belief in the importance of safety. It was a belief that what they were doing was safe. For clarity, I'm going to branch here and give you two segments, one on the technical problems and one on the management and regulatory problems. The two are of course strongly linked. Poor design influenced the way things were managed, and poor management influenced the way things were designed and operated. However, they're sufficiently distinct that we can discuss them separately. Let's start with design. From a design point of view, there were four major failings on Piper Alpha, all teaching lessons that are still relevant today. Number one, failure to include protection against unlikely but foreseeable events. Number two, an assumption that everything would work, with no backup provision if things didn't work. Number three, inadequate independence, particularly with respect to physical co-location of equipment. And number four, a design that didn't support the human activity that the design needed in order to be safe. So lesson number one, which we'll call the black swan. To a large extent, the technical failures on Piper Alpha are all failures of imagination. No one really believed 
a large gas explosion could happen. So they didn't think about the consequences if it did happen. This is a failing echoed in the Buntsfield Oil Depot explosion of 2005, or even the West Texas explosion this year. The Cullen Inquiry report into Piper Alpha is riddled with decisions that were made on the basis that things which were very, very unlikely could safely be ignored. This is a cognitive error lambasted by Nicholas Taleb's book on black swans. Rare, high-consequence events can be at least as important as frequent, low-consequence events. Contrast this with an internal report produced in 1984 after an evacuation of Piper Alpha. The report was titled How It Was versus How It Could Have Been. The message of this report was very clear. The 1984 evacuation was successful because of a combination of fortunate circumstances, but it could easily have been disastrous. In other words, they got lucky. Occidental's response to the report? They dismissed the concerns as painting a worst-case picture. Let's be very clear about the lesson here. There's nothing wrong with taking likelihood into account as part of risk measurement. There's equally nothing wrong with limiting the scope of a safety program to deal with credible threats. The problem is when you confuse unlikely with not going to happen. There are plenty of low-frequency events which can and should be mitigated. Dismissing them on the basis of likelihood without even calculating that likelihood and comparing it to the consequences, is very poor management. Lesson number two, which we'll call skating on thin ice. In the last DisasterCast episode, I discussed common narratives in disaster stories. Some LinkedIn users proposed another common plot, which I'll call skating on thin ice, or walking too close to the edge. The problem here is assuming that you're safe because you've done something to protect you against a hazard, and you assume, without evidence, that that something is enough. We're safe because there's a backup system, or we're safe because the pilot has other sources of information, or if that happens, the operator will spot it and fix it so it's not a problem. On Piper Alpha, there were plenty of hazard mitigations but no plan B if those mitigations didn't work. This was particularly true of the communication, firefighting and evacuation equipment and procedures. In those few cases where there was a plan B, it often went wrong at the same time as plan A. Which leads us to lesson number three, independence. It's depressingly common for explosions and fires to destroy the emergency systems that are supposed to cope with explosions and fires. It doesn't take a lot of thought to realise that this isn't at all inevitable. To start with, they already knew that the safest place on Piper Alpha was the accommodation block. We know they knew this because that's where the standing instructions told everyone to go in an emergency. If that's where all the survivors are going to be and where they're all going to congregate, 
why not put controls there for the emergency systems? To realise just how ridiculous the arrangements were, imagine a small fire on Piper Alpha that was big enough to require an evacuation. The people trying to organise that evacuation from the control room and the radio room would be in far more danger than the people they were trying to evacuate from the accommodation block. Obviously, there are safety and efficiency trade-offs that need to be made. The safest place for a radio room is not the most convenient place, particularly for day-to-day communication. It makes sense to put the radio room next to the control room and to put them both near the operational areas of the rig. However, once you've decided to make this trade-off, you've made a deliberate decision that your senior operators and your radio room will be destroyed in the first seconds of a disaster. You're not wrong to make that decision, but you have to live with it. You can't then have an emergency management plan which relies on having your senior operator and an intact radio room sitting there because you've decided in advance to put it somewhere where it's likely to be destroyed. Lesson number four. If you want to rely on humans, then make it possible for the humans to be reliable. Piper Alpha was not a standalone platform. It was connected by gas and oil pipelines to two other rigs, Tartan and Claymore. Successful management of a major emergency required coordination and cooperation between the platforms. Emergency procedures on all three rigs specifically talked about this. They discussed who would be in charge and what the other rigs would need to do. When the first explosion happened on Piper Alpha, it was the first real test of this coordination, and the test failed. There was no reliable way for the offshore installation managers on the three platforms to talk to each other during a major emergency. To a large extent, knowing what was happening required looking out a window at the flames in the distance, or communicating to shore via an unreliable radio link, to someone who was communicating to the other platform using another unreliable radio link, in a deadly game of Chinese whispers. There's a simple test for designing systems and procedures for humans to follow. It isn't enough, but it is a prerequisite for further safety. Ask someone to actually follow the procedure and watch them do it. If the system design doesn't provide enough support for humans to do what the procedure says they must do, then the system design and the procedures are a work of speculative fiction, not an instruction manual. So far, we've identified four lessons to be learned from the design of Piper Alpha. In this section, we'll draw out some management lessons. Remember, we're trying to get beyond the obvious here. Piper Alpha was 25 years ago, but the problems are things that real organisations are still struggling with right now. If you doubt this, just have a read of news articles about hospital safety, or Deepwater Horizon, or the latest aircraft accident. As you do so, remember that Piper Alpha had safety management, just as modern organisations do. They believed that they managed safety well, just as modern organisations do. They were wrong, just as many modern organisations are. 
There are three strong patterns in the management failings of Piper Alpha. The first pattern is a lack of feedback loops and an assumption that not hearing any bad information meant that things were working well. Throughout the Cullen Inquiry report, there are interviews with inspectors who were sure that the permit to work system on Piper Alpha was working well, despite the fact that they only visited in the evenings when very few permits to work were active. There are managers who claimed that shift handovers were done properly, despite the fact that they didn't actually observe the handovers themselves or have any alternate evidence for how well they were performed. There were training coordinators who didn't notice that the training that they were coordinating wasn't actually happening. All of this points to the presence of safety management, but no safety management system. What makes a system is the existence of a control and feedback loop to make sure that things are working correctly. In the 25 years since Piper Alpha, we've learned a thing or two about how to measure safety management system performance. The Cullen Report focuses on the need for a strong audit system. That wouldn't cut it today. Audits could have revealed how poorly the procedures were being followed, but not the underlying deficiencies in the procedures themselves. The lesson we need to remember from this pattern is that absence of bad news is not good news. It tells us that our reporting and feedback systems are broken, not that our safety management systems are working. On Piper Alpha, reporting suffered from both system faults and cultural weaknesses. Whilst operational staff technically had responsibility for important decisions, in practice, they didn't believe that they had the authority to refuse pressure to put operations ahead of safety. A key example is the decision to continue operations on the rig, despite the large program of construction and maintenance that was planned for June and July when the accident happened. Similar-sized work in 1984 and 1986 had included planned shutdowns for the entire platform while the work was carried out. Senior management was adamant after the disaster that if the supervisors on Piper Alpha had had any concerns with this, then they would have said so. The fact that no one objected was taken as evidence that everyone was perfectly happy with this decision. Again, the lesson is that if no one is raising any objections, that's not a sign that what you're doing is safe. It's a sign that no one is comfortable speaking out on the side of safety. A clue as to what may have been happening culturally comes from the deluge system. The pipework in this system had been corroding, and parts of the system were completely blocked. The issue was raised in audit reports in 1984 and 1985, and then by staff again in 1986. No action was taken, but the manager told the staff that if things got worse, then something would be done. After that, he said later that he wasn't particularly aware of any increased problem. No one had told him that the problem was getting worse. In hindsight, it's pretty obvious that staff had simply given up complaining about the problem because nothing was being done. The second pattern at Piper Alpha was a repeated belief that anything that went wrong was a once-off aberration 
rather than a clue to systemic failures. When a worker was killed in an accident termed the Sutherland Fatality, management agreed that part of the problem was failure to issue a revised permit to work when a job was reorganised. This was treated as a single violation of the permit to work system rather than a clue that the system was routinely violated. Think about it from a statistical point of view. What's more likely, that the very one time you break the rules, a person got killed, or that the time the person got killed is just one of many times you've broken the rules but no one noticed? When stud bolts failed on one of the compressors due to fatigue, no one remembered to check the bolts on the other compressor. This was treated as a serious omission, but not representative of general maintenance practices. In other words, the engineers recognised that equipment could have systematic failures, but not that their own practices could fail in the same way. The third pattern was a lack of open information flow. Staff were in some cases actively discouraged from talking freely about accidents and incidents, and the full reports from accidents were regularly distributed on a need-to-know basis only. There are scare quotes around need-to-know here. In retrospect, a heck of a lot more people needed to know about things that were going wrong. For more information about why this is a problem, read Johnson and Holloway's excellent and publicly available paper, Why Safety Engineers Should Read Accident Reports. If nothing else, they should at least be reading the accident reports that talk about their own company. Three patterns here, each of which gives a more sophisticated lesson than simply treating safety as important. They are all mistakes that modern organisations make. A lack of feedback and measurement of the safety management system. A belief that things that go wrong are isolated local problems. And a lack of open discussion about things that do go wrong. There's a fourth management lesson to do with the regulator. One of the interesting twists of the Piper Alpha inquiry is that the regulatory solution recommended by Lord Cullen was almost exactly what the oil industry was asking for, and almost the opposite of what the regulator was asking for. This was a very clear message that regulation had failed, not because of the amount of regulation, but because of the skill of the regulator. As Brian Appleton, one of the technical advisors to the inquiry, put it, the Department of Energy made no measurable contribution to offshore safety, and the idea that it could tell operators like Shell and BP and Conoco what to do was ludicrous. Appleton describes an industry that was innovative, competent, and filled with experienced, well-educated people. For a regulator to have credibility and authority in this environment, let alone make a positive difference, it didn't need teeth, it needed brains. A telling example is the inspection of the permit-to-work system. Remember, this is a system that had a broken design, was routinely violated, and had contributed to a previous fatality. The inspectors visiting the rig were unable to identify issues that were obvious to the inquiry, 
even after most of the evidence had been blown to pieces and sunk. Here's a quote from the inquiry talking about the most recent inspection. The inspectors had not been provided with any checklist on which to base an assessment of a permit-to-work system. To carry out a detailed comprehensive check on the permit-to-work system on Piper Alpha would require a study over a period of days, ideally by persons with specialised knowledge. He himself had never prepared, reviewed or brought into operation a permit-to-work procedure. The lesson here, still relevant today, is that regulation needs a suitable number of qualified, experienced and competent staff. If you don't spend money on the staff, you'll still get a regulator, but you won't have any increase in safety via the regulator, and they will probably overall increase costs rather than reduce them through their failure to understand what actually works. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. Special thanks this time to the Institution of Occupational Safety and Health, IOSH UK, who hosted a number of events around the Piper Alpha 25 Years On theme and did a great job of pushing awareness of the anniversary. The audio at the very start of this episode comes, with permission, from their YouTube channel. Special thanks also to David Cantrell, whose blog about programming in Perl managed to send a number of listeners to this show, and also to those of you who've mentioned the show on Facebook, despite the lack of a DisasterCast Facebook page. The theme music from DisasterCast comes from A Disaster Anthem by Heed and Prayer. <laughs>